and welcome. I'm your host, Darren Kaster. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM, or possibly one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all across the country, or on SoundCloud, or possibly on iTunes. Uh, you can uh, look for listings about other ways to follow the show at our website at greenmajority.ca. But without further delay, rhyme sort of intended. Uh, we actually have a wonderful interview today with someone who uh, I actually met uh, having come into some of my environment classes when I was here at University of Toronto. Uh, it's Dr. Bob Willard, uh, who's the author of several books on uh, business sustainability, including The Business Case for sustainability um, and uh, a public speaker. And uh, I actually met him uh, and arranged this interview at the event that we've been discussing for the last few weeks, which was Brad Zarnett's uh, Toronto Sustainability Speaker Series event. Uh, Bob actually came up to me because he appreciated the, the comment that I had made um, to the panel that was talking about uh, business sustainability that day and, and CSR um, from a, a Bay Street uh, perspective, uh, where I basically, uh, you know, the summary of my point at that time was uh, all these relative gains sound great, um, but if they're not being matched up to the actual physical hard limits, the non-relative uh, benchmarks, then what good are they? Uh, Bob came up to me after the event and, and said that he appreciated my comment, and, and we arranged this interview at that time. Uh, and I got Bob very much to speak about a very similar topic, because the project that he was working on right now is called the Future Fit Business Benchmark. Uh, I'm sure if you've been uh, interested in this field for any amount of time, you'll be aware that this is not the first time that someone has come up with a sustainability index for business or uh, benchmarks for business. Uh, Corporate Knights, for instance, has the, some of their benchmarks that they, they do to review companies. Uh, Bob didn't think they were good enough. So we spoke to Bob about the, uh, the new future fit business benchmark that he's uh, designing, what it means, what the implications are, and what some of those challenges will be. Uh, it's a little bit of a longer interview than we would normally play on the show. So what I've done is I've broken it into two parts. Uh, so Kevin Farmer's here in the studio with me. What we're going to do is we're actually going to go right now to the first part of that interview uh, with Dr. Bob Willard. We're going to listen to it. We're going to have a few comments, uh, and then we'll come back and, and discuss and, and do the second half. So without further ado, this is my interview uh, that was done yesterday with Dr. Bob Willard about the Future Fit Business Benchmark. So the Future Fit Business Benchmark is an attempt to put into place, finally, um, a scientifically-based definition of what a truly sustainable fit for the future, which is where the future fit comes from, a uh, company would be if it were ready for a very uncertain future. So there's been a lot of work done on indicators for companies environmental and social progress. So they should report on carbon and water and, and waste and um, all the usual stuff, energy. But nobody has said how much is enough on those things. And although there's progress being made on a number of different fronts, environmental as well as social, it's way too slow. Uh, I don't think most organizations, especially businesses, have any idea how big the gap is between where they are today and where they need to be if they were not to contribute to some of the issues that we're having to acknowledge these days. Um, and in fact, maybe even being restorative to society and the environment. So they, they don't have any metrics. They don't have the kind of benchmark that they, they need. There are three benchmarks in place right now. One is companies compare their progress or their performance today to where they used to be or where they'd like to be or to where other companies are, which is a relative performance. But 
um, we're lacking a fourth benchmark that says this is where science says they need to be if they are to be truly sustainable, fit for the future. That if they were to go on for ten, hundred, thousand years, it would be a good thing. Good thing for them, good thing for the environment, good thing for society. What the heck would that look like? Um, so we need to have better metrics. And the intent is that we, we stop faffing around on this and we put a stake in the ground and say, okay, this is where you need to be. We know that. That's what the science says. How are you doing on that? And how can we help you get there sooner? This sounds good, but many companies aren't really good at long-term thinking. They seem more concerned with short-term profitability. Is this going to be a problem for applying your metric? So there's a huge mindset issue, short-termism issue, business justification issue. Um, and as companies wrestle with what they should do more of or less of or just do in the first place, usually the lens that they look at um, is the, the duo of what's the risk if I don't do it and what's the opportunity if I do the good news is that we're getting better at being able to articulate that on the environmental and social front. A lot of the risk side is that they will jeopardize their social license to operate with their investors, with their customers, with their employees, with their communities, if they don't clean up their act. The other side is that if they were to do um, more positive things on the environmental and social side, there's actually some pretty good business evidence that they will save a lot of, of money, costs, and even make more money if they're smart about it, and that's the business case. Um, I've done a, a lot of work on the business case for companies um, just doing best practices. If they were simply to do what other companies have already done on the energy front, the waste front, the materials front, employee engagement, all of those kinds of things, that they would make at least 51 to 81% more profit in the next one to five years, um, which is no new technologies, no new nothing. What I want to do now is to say, actually, if you went the whole nine yards on this, not only doing best practices, but doing the, the, the practices that allow you to get to where you need to be, it could be even better. And that's what's going to be a, a companion to the benchmark. So you can't ask a company to step up to a goal that's going to look like a sacrifice to them. Uh, so it behooves us to be able to show that each of these goals is going to reap some business benefits as well as environmental and social benefits. Uh, we know that. We just need to monetize it a bit better, and we will. Do you think that companies think that they have a need for an improved system? Are they hungry for a new model? Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, I think they're starting to become more aware of some of the issues that you and I would probably identify as being uh, planetary boundary type issues or um, issues related to uh, the abuse that we have subjected the environment and society to. So I call those things boomerang impacts. For the last 250 years, um, companies have had a heck of a party. It's, it's been really, really good. Uh, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution uh, in 1776, um, it's been fantastic. Except we're starting to push the limits of the carrying capacity of the planet. Uh, especially since 1950, the last 65 years, it's been an incredible acceleration. It's an exponential curve of acceleration of um, a lot of the factors that are starting to boomerang back on the company. 
So they're running out of natural resources. They're running out of fossil fuels. Although fossil fuel companies would tell us there's lots there, uh, they may not be allowed to actually burn them. So scarcity starts to creep into the um, equation for businesses. Scarcity equals increased cost. Increased cost equals financial impact. That's not good. So companies need to be able to position themselves so that as water gets more scarce, as all of the resources that they are dependent on get more scarce, um, as regulations start to tighten up, as governments get a little twitchy about all of this stuff, that they are going to be positioned to do okay. In fact, do really well. So a lot of this is coming up on the radar screens in the boardrooms as to what's going on out there because it's starting to impact them. Scarcity, severe weather events. If, they, if they're hit by them, or their transportation routes to their suppliers, or the suppliers themselves, or the transportation routes between their suppliers and their suppliers and so on, or to their customers, if those things start to be subjected to risks associated with severe weather events and so on, uh, then it starts to get personal for companies, and it is now. Not so much 10 years ago, now. So it's becoming a little bit more legitimate for enterprise risk management, ERM systems, uh, to include social and environmental factors than it used to be. This makes a lot of sense for companies with, like, say, a supply chain, like Walmart. But what about companies where this is, seems to be a direct conflict with their business model, like an oil company, or maybe Nestle that wants to privatize all water? Yeah, and there will be some of the goals. We've got 28 goals, and I know we're going to talk about a little, those a little bit more. But um, companies will probably be able to do really, really well on at least 20 or 24 of them. But depending on the sector, there will probably be a handful of them that look like mission impossible. So if they're very water-dependent, some of the goals associated with water uh, could be pretty problematic for them. So the question comes up then, if that's the case, does that mean that they can never be truly sustainable? And the answer is yeah, given their current business model. On the other hand, if they'd like to explore what a business model might look like, either a, a, a retuned business model or a brand new business model, uh, we will have tools that allow them to do that. It's called a canvas. And there's a business model canvas already out there uh, that Alex Osterwalder had several years ago. We're intending to layer on top of that one which allows for the environmental and social dimensions of the company a little bit more rigorously so that if a company really does want to design a business that could be truly sustainable, future fit, uh, we've got tools that allow them to do that. So an energy company, for example, when we talk about no greenhouse gases, not only scope one and two, but also scope three, which is a killer for... for um, oil and gas companies. So rather than being an oil and gas company, maybe they could be an energy company. And that opens up different possibilities for the way in which they source their energy. So there are oil and gas companies like Suncor who have redefined their vision of being an energy company, not a fossil fuel company. The extent to which they are living up to that vision is, you know, depending on your point of view, not quite as hopeful as we'd like it to be. But the fact is that most companies that are using a current business model to do something that they think is going to add value or provide value to their customers have opportunities that they could take advantage of if they wanted to, to provide equally valuable services just a different way. 
So it may be mission impossible for some companies, uh, but it's high time we told them that or that they told themselves that or that their stakeholders recognize that and that their accountability as responsible businesses, responsible corporate citizens, includes the responsibility to do no harm to our world, their world and our world. And we have been dancing around this for a long time. And I think it's time for us to become a little bit more um, rigorous, outspoken, aggressive on this, because we're running out of runway on some of these things. Playing nice in the sandbox isn't working. So I think it's time that we kind of put a big spotlight on companies that are deliberately, strategically um, working against the things that we care about. I've seen many ben benchmarks and green indexes and stuff before. What's different about this one? Yeah, maybe a little bit of the evolution of our thinking around this would be helpful as context for that. Um, I take a look at rankings of, of companies that are done by Corporate Knights and uh, Newsweek and Fortune and so on. Periodically, there are rankings that come out of how companies compare to each other on a scale on sustainability. And you take a look at the, the companies that are on there and you kind of want to throw up. I mean, how could some of these companies even make the cut to be considered on that list? And then you take a look at the criteria by which they are uh, being assessed. And uh, Corporate Knights, for example, has got 12 criteria and wonderfully transparent about that. They, they explain the criteria. They tell you exactly how the calculations are done. Um, and they're using publicly available data to be able to make these assessments. Um, and I take a look at the criteria and I say, well, how come you're using that one and how come you're not using this one? So as I started to do this about 12 years ago, um, I just kept putting this on the back burner, saying, well, they're not using the right stuff. They should be using other stuff. And finally, about two years ago, uh, actually it was three years ago, I told myself, either put up or shut up. It, what, what is the criteria? What are the right criteria? And that's what led us to science. Uh, that's as close to right as you can get. So what does environmental science say about the way in which we need to behave towards the environment? And there are three fundamental principles that we are using, and they distill into don't screw it up, do no harm. So the environmental things say stop abusing the environment because we need that capital and we need the ecosystem services that it's providing. The social side is a little bit tougher. Um, but how would we know what the attributes of a resilient, sustainable society are? I mean, is Toronto that? What are we looking for? What are the fundamental principles that we're trying to do, trying to live up to? Um, so after a fair amount of uh, research, uh, we came up with five principles. Five social principles, three environmental principles, so there are eight principles. That's the, what we're calling best available science. If someone comes up with something better, we'll use it. Right now, that's the best we've got. Um, so we're saying, okay, if those are the boundaries around the way in which a company needs to operate, that is to say, don't do any harm to society, don't do any harm to the environment, how do they need to perform to reassure themselves and us that, that they're not doing that on energy, water, material, waste, all of those kinds of things? 
So that's where the goals came from. Every goal is linked back to a scientific need for that goal. Um, so the science has been there for quite a while. It's just it hasn't been used in quite this way before. The natural step is that the organization has probably invested more than most other non-governmental organizations into the scientific dimension of sustainability. Uh, and that really informed our thinking in a wonderful way, especially on the environmental things, as well as the social, because they're working on the social as well. All right. That was part one of my interview with Dr. Bob Willard about the Future Fit Business Benchmark. We'll be back uh, after a music break in just a moment to uh, have some quick thoughts uh, with myself and Kevin Farmer about the part one. And then we have uh, part two of this uh, exceptional interview. Uh, I just take an opportunity really quickly to remind people that uh, we do a whole lot of stuff besides the show. So if you're interested in uh, keeping up to date in what, with what we do, or if you're not always able to, to catch the radio program, or you might be interested in some of the other stuff, uh, we do have a mailing list we send out once a month that uh, just collects all of the stuff we've done uh, that month. So links to the radio show, links to all the YouTube content we put out, uh, some of which is stuff that's just the video component of what's aired on the radio show. Some of it's completely independent and standalone. Uh, so if you're interested in just keeping up to, to date with what we're doing, it would uh, uh, very much please us uh, to have you. You can just go to greenmajority.ca and, and look for that. Uh, without further ado, though, we're going to go to our music break here on Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, or one of our wonderful community radio sponsors. We'll be right back.
right, we are back here into the middle part of the Green Majority. Uh, Aaron, would you please let us know what we were just listening to? Yeah, that was uh, Sissy Neck by Beck. I yeah. thought I recognized that. It's yeah. been a, it's been a little while since I listened to some back, but good call this week. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll Kanye check West later. will be phoning in. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, Kanye West, if you happen to be listening, the call in line is four one six nine four six seven thousand. Call us in and tell us why Beyonce should have gotten something. I don't know. Uh, all right. So, uh, Kevin, uh, I you were nodding your head furiously to the point that I was concerned about uh, the, your next ability. There, would you would you well, like I'm, to make a I'm comment? Old. Uh, yeah. No. The best comment I could make would be listen to that again. Uh, you know, what, what could I possibly add to that? Um, although it's, it was weird to listen to that. I felt normal because uh, for a few minutes because it's like, you know, I've been talking about things like this for years. And and, and these sentiments are echoed so rarely out, mm. outside of me <laughs> that it just, you know, you feel like a little divorced from reality some days when you think, you know, why is no one talking about this? And yet it seems so obvious. Mm. Um, I, what I will add to this is, is, is just a, a conceptual statement. <clears throat> Sustainability is is simply the capacity to endure. Uh, if 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 an activity is not sustainable, it will not endure. That's just by definition. And I think we've wrapped our heads somewhat around the notion that our lifestyles and our business practices are are our our economy essentially it it is unsustainable. But what we haven't wrapped our heads around is that it will come to an end. Whether we prepare for that or not, it, it, this is nothing about ideology. This is simply a statement of the problem. What we are doing is not sustainable. By definition, it cannot endure. The, the immediate corollary of that is that these activities will come to an end, whether we prepare for that end or not. It's a question now. The question before us is how do we manage the transition, the inevitable transition from where we are today to a sustainable future? If you're bombing down the highway and you're headed towards, I don't know, something, <laughs> an obstruction, you, you know, a big boulder or a landslide, you are going to come to a full stop, whether you do that violently by crashing into the obstruction or whether you do it, you know, proactively by applying the brakes in a sufficient manner to come to a halt uh, in a controlled fashion before the collision. And that's really that's really what we're up against. We are up against we are up against existential limits to things like water, soil. The a report from the UN recently said we have about sixty years left of soil at the rate that we're destroying it. These these are not um, you know these you know we're, we're way past this notion that there's environmentalists out there worried about you know some grouse somewhere or some pheasant that you know people can't think well oh, that how how do we how could we possibly care about this you know, weird squirrel somewhere, or, you know, an owl that only exists on 10 acres yeah. of land somewhere in BC. We're just way past that sensibility. We're, we're, we're dealing with hard limits on vital inputs like, like water, soil, land. And, and, if you, and if we continue to acidify the ocean, we might be imperiling the source of 50% of the oxygen on this planet. So again, we will transition to a sustainable future. <laughs> we will either do that proactively or we will do it very painfully when the laws of nature correct our activities, which are unsustainable, by bringing them to an end, which they, which, which will in fact happen. Well, and to put, to put it into economics terms, they would refer to this as a, a bubble. I mean, the, the carbon bubble gets used, but in a more general sense, this sort of the, this is the industrialization uh, capitalist nightmare bubble, oh, and, it, and it will pop. Yeah. And the the absolutely sublime word that I love for this sort of thing. Um, that completely sums it up, but in, in a very sterile way, is uh, the the market will experience a correction. 
I've tried to say that a few times on the show. We will. We are headed for a correction, yeah. and I agree with you. It's exactly in that fundamental sense that it is a bubble. We are. We are. <clears throat> we are essentially. A lot of what we call profit and wealth right now mm. is is simply stuff that we have a, um, uh, uh, appropriated or expropriated. I cannot remember the right word. Expropriated from the future. You know, we we're simply we're simply you know again it's the question of full cost accounting and whatnot. Like we're just not even even what we call wealth creation now is is really uh, is really resource destruction. And and we're just we just the bill for it simply hasn't come in yet. Like this in a lot of in a in a fundamental sense, this isn't wealth. It's like it's like buying on a credit card. We're racking up interest. The bill the bill is on its way. And and it, it, and so yeah, it just I mean yes. Can I get a, can I get an amen on that interview? We we need to be talking about sustainability, but we need to rescue this term from the 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 kind of the dissipation that has gone on with like environmental and eco friendly and green. Like these mm. things just have become watered down, greenwashed, turned into marketing terms, become so common. In 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 discourse that people without without being attached to its proper meaning that we just throw this word around now uh, you know people say you know people talk now routinely about uh, business practices and economic practices that are more sustainable <laughs> are more sustainable it's like come on it's like you know being a little bit pregnant you're either sustainable or you're not sustainable I mean you can <laughs> and you could be headed towards that. That date with dest- that date with sustainability at a faster and slower pace, I guess. But but this notion that that you know this is something we can always just be making incremental progress on is is a mistake. Yeah. It's we either make progress, we either we either achieve sustainability uh, in time, or we don't. Like relative to say things like the carbon budget with the atmosphere, we either get to zero carbon before the warming genie is out of the bottle. Or we don't. So incremental progress is, you know, oh yay, you know, you know, progress. <laughs> but but again, that's like that's like that's like being in the car headed towards this this you know obstruction on the road and saying, well, we're applying the brakes, we're making progress, we're braking, not nearly fast enough to avoid you know like a messy. We were going 140 miles per hour. Now we're going 128 miles per hour. So <laughs> yeah. what are you complaining about? Yeah, the, the mess. Yeah. The the yeah. The, <laughs> We'll, we'll, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so uh, let's leave it there. Let's go. We have a few more left in uh, part two of this interview. Uh, I, I wanted to just slip in before we went there. Thank you for saying the words carbon budget, uh, Kevin, because I also reminded me to let people know that we released our first animated show. Uh, another good reason to get on that mailing list. We have uh, episode one called The Carbon Budget Explained. It is fully animated by none other than the David Hostetter, the uh, brother of uh, our other co-host, Stefan. Uh, it's wonderful. It's on our YouTube page. And the easiest way to find that is to get on the mailing list, which you can do at greenmajority.com. Uh, without further ado, though, this is part two of our interview with Dr. Bob Willard about the Future Fit Business Benchmark. So um, there are lots of points of view on this stuff. The Global Reporting Initiative, the GRI, the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, the UN Global Compact, uh, the B-Lab Business Impact Assessment questions, they all ask questions about these things, but they never tell you how, how high the bar is that you're trying to get to. They just say, how are you doing on it? You know, and, and you say, well, I'm doing this. And then they kind of assess how you're doing compared to other organizations. Uh, what we're looking for is a scientific target, scientifically based target for all of those. And I think that'll help us realize how much work we need to do. And especially in the case of climate change, the sense of urgency that we get there before it's too late. 
When you're looking at the specific sectors and the specific criteria, how easy is it to come up with benchmarks? Yeah, it wasn't quite as hard as we thought it would be on the environmental ones. So there are a lot of, uh, when we express them in words, alls or nos in the goals associated with environmental things. So all of your energy is renewable energy, or you have no greenhouse gases, or you are um, not exceeding your allowable share of water from a sustainable source of water in your watershed. So you get into a little crisper definition of what the limits are that companies need to respect. Um, so the environmental ones are, are easy. No waste, no waste of any kind. Um, although there are permits that allow companies to pollute up to a certain extent, there is only so much ability of the planet to absorb that. And as Johan Rockström, the guy that identified these nine planetary boundaries, is wonderfully helpful in pointing out, we're kind of exceeding or pushing the limits of some of these boundaries. Uh, and we need to stop doing that. And the ones where we are already in the danger zone, we need to be able to recover and help nature restore itself on those things. So this isn't opinion. This is scientific fact. And it's very, very clear that if we continue on the path that we're going, um, uh, this isn't going to work out very well. Originally, I was worried about my grandkids. Uh, the more you get into it, of course, the more you know. And I thought, hmm, okay, I'm worried about my kids and my grandkids. And especially on climate change, I'm starting to take this a little more personally. This is, this is going to impact me. Um, so when you start to put that lens on it as to who's screwing up the world for my kids and my grandkids, you find that the, um, the energy that you bring to this is a little higher because uh, that's stupid. So we need to fix that. And although we think that there are other organizations or people in power that are going to do that, I think as individuals we need to kind of roll up our sleeves and say, okay, enough. How can the circle of influence that I have be leveraged to be able to do some of the things that need to be done faster than they would otherwise be able to? So a lot of this is using science to define what those limits are for both organizations as well as all of humanity, and um, using science as the guide for the urgency associated with all of those. What about the social aspect? Is this an important factor? Is it easy to measure? Social is a nightmare. I mean, you get three social scientists in a room and ask them to define the fundamental systems principles around a sustainable society, and you will get at least 10 answers. I mean, they're, they're, the the um, the consensus around the tight, essential principles for a sustainable, resilient, healthy society, um, it'll be a, probably a couple more generations before everybody nods in unison. So we finally gave up on trying to reach that consensus, and we are using five social systems conditions that have been uh, pretty well synthesized from a lot of the other frameworks that are out there. 
and we do have a way of bridging from our five to other people's, sometimes 11, sometimes 12. So there are various indexes of progress or better living indices or that kind of thing uh, that we can bridge back to. Uh, but essentially, the, the social ones are that you and I need to be healthy if we are going to be able to recover from shocks to society. So society needs you and me to be healthy. Healthy physically, healthy mentally, and healthy emotionally. Not so stressed out that we can't think. The health dimension or need is fundamental to everything else. The reason we need the environment is because without the environment we can't be healthy. Clean air, clean water, soil, food, that kind of stuff. Plus, the other things that are on the social front are academic if you're not healthy. So health is absolutely critical. Um, so of the five social principles or systems conditions, um, that is the most important one. Then you come into other things that, that you need to have competence in something, that you need to bring something to the table. If you and I are going to work out how to recover from something, we need to bring something to the table, both of us. We need to have access to knowledge. Um, we need to be able to work this thing through with an informed perspective. We need to treat each other fairly. That's the social justice, social equity, uh, diversity kind of thing. We need to have something that gives us meaning in our lives, purpose in our lives, or else we just give up and curl up and die. Uh, so you need to have people that are driven by something that they really care about. Um, so those are the kinds of things that are in the, the social systems conditions. Uh, and they're a pretty good uh, reflection of human rights principles, of uh, ethical principles, of... Um, the indices that are already in play that are measuring progress on, on the social side. So they're good enough. So we say, okay, here are the five on the social side, the three on the environmental side. Let's use those to, to drive everything else. So the 28 goals all link back to one or more of those. If they can't, we won't use them. So there are some goals I would love, from a personal point of view, to have. I just can't figure out how much is enough. So for example, Corporate Knights, when they assess companies, one of the 12 criteria is the ratio of the CEO's salary, remuneration, to the average employee's remuneration, which is actually it's an obscene ratio on the average. In the U.S., I think it's 384 to 1. In Canada, it's about half of that, about 170 to 1. So you know that it's a little on the high side, uh, but the question is, what's the right ratio? And we can't find any science-based uh, guidance on that. Some of us may think it's 10, 5, 2, 1, 20. I don't know what the ratio is. So we dropped that one. Uh, and instead of that, we put in that everybody gets at least a living wage, um, which is coming at it a different way. So at least we have enough to be able to maintain our health emotional health, so we're not stressed out, working three jobs, um, able to get nutrition, and be able to buy things that, and shelter and so on. Um, so the living wage, which sounds like a no-brainer, uh, but we are a long ways from that. I mean, in Ontario, we just went from ten twenty-five to $11 uh, an hour as a minimum wage. The poverty line wage in Ontario is about $14.40. So minimum wage puts you in poverty. And in Toronto, it's different for every city, of course, as to what a living wage is, but uh, it's $16.60 in Toronto. 
1660 living wage, 1440 poverty line wage, $11 minimum wage. You see. At least pay everybody a living wage. That's based on science. And the science says that people need that to be healthy. Are there any questions? That's, that's kind of the way we're coming at it, you know? It's, it's a no-brainer. So a lot of them are human rights stuff, you know? Don't hurt people, don't kill people, that kind of stuff. Um, the, probably the most controversial of the 28 will be um, pay all of your taxes for a company. Tax avoidance, not tax evasion, which is legal. Tax avoidance, which is legal. It's unethical, but it's legal. Um, is rampant. And if you don't pay your taxes, then governments don't have the uh, revenue that allows them to provide the services, health and education and infrastructure and transit and all of the things that you and I think governments should provide us with. Um, And if they can't do that, then uh, you get into a lot more privatization of things that you and I think governments should be providing us with. So... Uh, the evidence, and until I did the research on this, I, I had no clue, but the, the evidence of tax avoidance um, globally is uh, appalling, absolutely appalling. Very, very, very big companies with a lot of money are paying little or no taxes because they're very creative on shell companies being set up in tax havens, uh, being very aggressive on trying to figure out where the the tax treaties between companies give them the best leverage, uh, transfer prices inside the company that allow them to get away with ridiculous amounts of money that they transfer to tax havens. Very creative, extremely creative, uh, but unethical. Finally, Bob, you've outlined really well some of the challenges and some of the goals. But what do you see as the biggest threat to those goals? What is the biggest problem that's going to prevent us solving from these problems? Is it, for instance, inertia? Yeah, inertia is huge. Some people call that the status quo, which is incredibly entrenched. Uh, So we're not minimizing what the effort is. Um, We're starting with businesses with a benchmark that describes what a future fit, truly sustainable business is. It's not the only sector on the planet, but it's the most influential sector because it influences everything, everything, including politicians. So we're trying to make it much more transparent as to how they are doing on the things that matter. Um, Help them see that, help their important stakeholders see that, and then we can decide whether we want to do something about it. Um, We also realize, though, that they're, they're not the only sector in society, that there are other sectors as well. So our intent is within the next two years, by 2017, to put out four more benchmarks. This first one is for companies, for-profit businesses. We think that we need to have one for municipalities, for governments. So what would a truly sustainable city, municipality, look like? How would we know? You know they're being rated right now on which are the most sustainable cities on the planet. Uh, Corporate Knights does that. Um, do we agree with their criteria? And if all of the cities were really sustainable, would we be okay? What's that look like? So we want to have one for cities. We want to have one for uh, universities. Actually, all of it, formal education, but universities. Uh, one for non-governmental organizations. And one for households, which is be the, will be the toughest. Uh, so we want to have those four sectors covered by 2017. And by 2020, get a critical mass of the players in all of those sectors on board. 
So businesses can't hide anymore. Everyone's going to be playing from the same playbook. And therefore, all of the excuses that they will try to use again as to why it's not possible, we will be able to show them categorically not only is it possible, but as necessary. And not only is it necessary, but it's a good thing for them, which is the business case. So the intent is to make this a uh, legitimate conversation, dialogue, mindset in society so that we get a critical mass of people that understand what's going on and are determined to ensure that we improve the situation for themselves, for their kids and so on, as well as for the organizations that they're a part of. So this is not a sacrifice. There's a myth that all of this good stuff will sewer companies, that it'll slow them down. And a lot of my claim to fame is to show that that's not the case, that there is a business case for this. Um, and we need to be able to show that that business case includes the attractiveness of the company to investors who are looking for safe places to put their capital. And if companies have positioned themselves to be able to be fit for the future, the risk of putting your capital into that company is a lot less than a company is going to get blindsided by something that they weren't expecting. So the intent here is to make them more attractive for investors more attractive for employees, more attractive for customers, more successful. So this is not a sacrifice. It's good for everybody. We've just done a terrible job of articulating that as sustainability champions. So we need to be a little bit more fact-based, and that's where the science is going to help us. All right. And that was our interview with Dr. Bob Willard. Uh, you can re-watch that uh, with, uh, and see the uh, wonderful tie he's actually wearing in the video version of that that'll interview that will be on uh, YouTube uh, as well. We're also going to come back in just a moment for a couple uh, final wrap-up uh, comments and thoughts and a preview of next week's show. Uh, in just a minute after a music break, I will just take another opportunity to let people know uh, if you want to uh, stay up to date with a lot of the other stuff we're doing, including our new uh, animated series called Climate cartoons, uh, explaining some uh, very basic stuff that uh, your average voter needs to know that uh, that many do not uh, about where uh, climate science meets public policy. Um, we'll be uh, sending out information about that. I'm going to be sending out an email today. So if you are listening live in Toronto, you can go to greenmajority.ca. Get on that list. Uh, right now, even if you'd pull over to the side of the road and do it on your phone, uh, and you'll get an email today with a link to that new cartoon and a whole bunch of other stuff that we're doing uh, as well. Uh, but without further ado, we will go to our final music break here on the Green Majority CIUT 89.5 FM or one of our wonderful community partners. We'll be right back.
back here in the final home stretch here of the Green Majority. We just have about 10 minutes left. Aaron, do you want to please let us know what we were listening to? Yeah, that was uh, Chamber of Reflection by Mac DeMarco. Awesome. Thank you so much, Aaron. Welcome. And uh, all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, I looked out into our wonderful CIUT waiting room and Dave Meslin was just standing there. Welcome to the Green Majority, Dave. Hey, amazing to be on the show. So uh, <laughs> we were just talking a lot about uh, uh, sustainability and business case and uh, uh, some of the stuff that came up at the end of that interview with Dr. Bob Willard was uh, some stuff around uh, corporate tax evasion and just but we basically started what we essentially got into at the end of the interview was the understanding uh, that all of these problems are linked together. Our, our democratic problems are is linked to uh, sort of the, the organizational systems, which has to do with how the companies uh, influence and and that a lot of these problems are systemic and, and feed into just so many just different areas, which is uh, both a way to think about the problem that I think makes it very effective, but also makes it very, very difficult because there's so many moving parts and all of them need to be moved. Uh, so I thought that would lead in quite well to what you're working on right now. Sure. I mean, it, it all comes down to power. People feel very powerless right now. I mean, people feel that there's other forces at play that are so much bigger than us that what what change can I make? And, you know, if you believe that, it's actually a rational response to disengage. You know, why would you waste time engaging in a system where you have no voice? And if you look at it, it's kind of funny because the folks on the far left and the far right – actually have a very similar point of view when it comes to the sense that, like, someone's screwing us over. So if you look at the language of the Tea Party and Occupy, there's a lot of overlap, which is like, we got to take the power back. It's about the people, right? So the question is, how do we do that? How do we create a culture of participation where people know that they have a voice, where they have a role to play, where their participation can be meaningful and authentic? Mm. And um, I'm actually crowdsourcing the answer to that and not one answer but 100 answers. So I have a website, 100remedies.org, and I'm crowdsourcing 100 ways that we can transform a culture of disengagement into a culture of meaningful participation. And I would love for your listeners to check out the website and throw up your own ideas. In the past few weeks, people have said, let's lower the voting age. Someone talked about voting Buses that they had in Calgary, mm. where this bus would drive around. Instead of having to know where your own polling station was and go to it, this bus would drive by. You just hop on it and vote. Um, people have talked about mandatory voting, which they do in Australia. Proportional representation, we need so desperately. I mean, the name of the show says it all. I mean, uh, fifty-eight per- uh, 62% of Canadians voted against uh, the Stephen Harper government in the last election. 
why like why is he the prime minister? Like it's mathematically fraudulent. Mm-hmm. We there was a lot of talk about how the robocalls was fraudulent. And I remember being outraged during that that outrage because I was thinking, forget about the robocalls. That was like a few thousand votes that were stolen. The entire election was stolen. <laughs> we had an election. The incumbent government was rejected by a vast majority of the country, and they won a majority of the seats. The exact opposite of what we asked for because people do care about the environment. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are a lot of things to fix, and I'm writing a book. It's going to be published by Penguin Canada next year about how we fix democracy. And I don't have the answers, but I know that your listeners do. So I'm hoping that um, that they'll participate, 100remedies.org. And so, the, I mean, the thing there is that you're somewhat of a local celebrity because you've, you've started an, a, a number of initiatives. And, and so perhaps you're the perfect person to ask that uh, as we as, – as Bob was saying and as you were just saying and as, and as we were saying during our last break, uh, it's not like people don't know the answers. It's, it's that there's, there's sort of it, – it, it, sometimes it feels like there's not enough of us to make a difference. Uh, but that's not true. And that's what you've pointed out and, and that's what Bob was pointing out was it, there, it, it, there is enough people. It's just that there, there isn't enough people that are in positions of power and the people that don't have power are are either apathetic or forcibly kept apathetic to 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 engage that so um, from the position of somebody that that has been very active almost uh, active enough for several people's worth um, what would you suggest as far as maybe someone who's like yeah you know I agree with you know what Bob was saying I agree with what Darren was saying I agree with what Dave was saying but what can I do I mean, you can do a lot. It sounds cliche, but the truth is that all change happens because a few people get together with a common vision, a common goal, and they find creative ways to get their message across and to mobilize people into effective organizations that put pressure on power. But if we want to fix democracy, we have to look beyond just changing the voting system or campaign finance reform. We have to look at how our culture, culturally, from a young age in our school system, we teach obedience rather than confidence. Um, we do this in so many ways. We do it through the media. We do it through the way we use our public spaces. Um, we do it from the way we introduce children to the concept of authority, which is the principal's office. It's a place you avoid. It's a place you go to when you've been bad. And then when people get out of school, they avoid city hall and they avoid parliament because you've been taught to lie low. If we introduced authority at a low age, the principal isn't the person who's going to discipline you. The principal is the person whose job it is to listen to you and to discipline. If you get in trouble, you're going to the principal's office. But if you have a good idea about how to make the school better for you as a student, let us know and you can talk to the principal because within a power structure – You have the strongest role, right? The strongest position in in our democratic society isn't the prime minister. It's the citizen. We hire and fire the prime minister. So we're in a higher HR, right, role. In a school, the students should be seen as having the highest position, and they should know that the principal's job is to listen to their input because no one can see the world through the eyes of a student except for a student. If we did that, we'd have a generation of people who have a much stronger sense of confidence in their own voice. Kevin, we're uh, into the the final five minutes. I, I generally, as a tradition, like to give you the last word. Do you, do you have a comment on on either what Dave was saying or or anything uh, that you really jumped out at you from the second part of Bob's interview? Well, I want to say you know, Bob Willard for the win today. Yeah, um, I, in, for the for the audience at home that couldn't see us, well, we were both looked like a, a bunch of bobbleheads in here the entire time that interview was playing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I do think, um, you know, he talked to the, towards the end of the interview about the business case for sustainability. Uh, and if, if people are interested in that, just research Ray Anderson, who is a uh, an amazing figure who died a few years ago. 
Um, just Google him. Look for clips of, of him speaking on YouTube. He, he's given some fascinating talks. He was uh, he's, little clips of interviews with him were featured several times during the documentary, The Corporation. Um, and he talks about the business case for sustainability. Just as a little thought-provoking notion, I'd like to toss out there, though, that um, he uh, he moved a great way towards a sustainable business model. I don't. He was the CEO of Interface, and I don't think even today Interface is has achieved the goal of being a 100% sustainable enterprise. But they did, along the way, uh, see great gains in profitability and, and reduction in costs and so on and so forth. What I, what, what I wonder in my moments, though, is that, hmm, that's interesting because none of the people purchasing from him were earning their money from sustainable enterprises. So to say in this microcosm that we had a sustainable enterprise that was profitable – uh, you know, writ large might still not, you know, uh, you know, that, 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 that notion might not be portable to the larger vision. And in which case, I'd like to say maybe, or not, not maybe, but certainly at some point, we need to discuss what profit means, and what this commitment to endless profit means, because in a perfectly sustainable system, I just can't think of any way for, you know, say the three of us, four of us, five of us now here in the studio, to trade amongst ourselves, uh, applying any metric to that trade, under which we can all say we're profiting forever from each other. <laughs> so I think I think somewhere we have to stir that in. And I'm I'm just want to uh, and, and I, I I should throw in Dave Meslin for the win today too because that was that was the, I surprise love guest appearance yeah a surprise win. cameo from out of nowhere but <laughs> but uh, you know Dave's Dave's uh, trying to. Uh, crowdsource a hundred ways to fix democracy, and I was joking Riley in the break that I'd be happy if we could just implement one fix for democracy. <laughs> but you know, on the notion of voter engagement, I couldn't possibly agree more. What worries me is that you could, you know, mandatory votes and vote buses, and you know, getting youth out in in droves and and all fired up, and then and then due to proportional representation, still throwing millions of votes in the garbage every year. Yeah. Then you're just going to you're just going like I worry that this notion of all of these efforts of engagement they're laudable we need them but then you turn out a whole new raft of people that just go well what was the point of that exactly. but <laughs> that's mean, why it's a hundred I mean there there's no one fix that's on that is on its own exactly. will make a difference as you started seeing before it's all interconnected it's an ecosystem of reform yeah and it, they all feed each other they do Get, boosting think, voter turnout under first past the post is useless in fact you're right it could backfire yeah that's what I mean that's the only point I wanted to get in there was that I think proportional representation might need to be like among the first things. I mean, my vote hasn't counted in 30 years, and I had the unique experience of wasting my vote once by voting for myself. <laughs> and I marked that was I, the only vote you never wasted. <laughs> Not many people could say that. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, a, it was a wry moment where I thought, well, once again, my vote doesn't count, and that's me. <laughs> but you know, it just we we have to do this. But I just don't. I think I think among uh, you, proportional representation, like you said, this is an illegitimate government that has been empowered by an illegitimate system. It, it, this system produces illegitimate results because it is just wholly, wholly, entirely inadequate to, for a multi-party system to be using first-past-the-post. And all parties are to blame for that, and yes. all parties have been perpetuating it for mm. decades, just right. for the record. 
Well, I'm afraid we'll have to cut it off there, but I want to thank very much, of course, uh, Bob Willard for spending so much time with me yesterday for the interview, Dave Meslin for sneaking into the studio literally while I grabbed him by the arm during a music break because I just happened to see him here at CIUT. Please do check out the website. If you get on our mailing list, you can find out all about the new climate cartoon series that we're launching, animated explanations, simplified explanations of the challenges that need to be uh, tackled about climate change. You can get all the links to the podcast, all the shows, and all of our other YouTube content at greenmajority.ca. That's been it for this week. Everybody have a good green week, and we'll see you all real soon.